0: What does it mean to be modern? And what is modernity, anyway? I'm Ryan McDermott, host of Genealogies of Modernity, and
1: I'm here to tell you that it's complicated. No, just kidding. In this show, we get a bunch of academics to actually venture answers to some really tough questions. What is genealogy? What are the sources of racism and anti-racism? You might disagree with our answers, but you can find them on Genealogies of Modernity, a limited series from Ministry of Ideas.
0: Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine So that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome to the New Books Network.
2: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the New Books Network. My name is Rachel Pagonis, and I'm your host for this episode. Today, I'm speaking with Andrew Zitzer about his new book, Practicing Cooperation Mutual Aid Beyond Capitalism. Andrew Zitzer is the director of the Urban Strategy Graduate Program and associate professor of arts administration and museum leadership at Drexel University in Philadelphia. He teaches courses in civic engagement, research design and methods, creative placemaking, and cultural policy. Andrew's research focuses on cooperative social and economic practices as well as the role of arts and community and economic development. His work has been published in Urban Geography, Antipode, Planning Theory and Practice, and the Journal of Planning Education and Research. Previously, Andrew worked as Cultural Asset Manager at the University of Pennsylvania, coordinating a series of community-based arts interventions, including a performing arts venue, art gallery, and artist in residency program. He also co-founded the Rotunda, a community art space that hosts hundreds of free performances and draws over twenty thousand people annually. Andrew
1: Zitzer, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me.
2: Well, it's a pleasure. And first, would you tell us something about your background and how you became interested in the practice of cooperation?
1: Sure. Um, you know, I think it all goes back to uh, the late '90s when I was an undergraduate at University of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia. Um, I was interested in music and art and culture, and I was studying the humanities, and um, I was given the opportunity to think through a project that some students had started before me to put together a jazz club um, at the intersection between Penn's campus and the West Philadelphia community, Um, and based on the reading and the training and the thinking that I had been doing up to that point, I realized that a jazz club wouldn't be... um, an effective intervention to build community at that intersection. But what instead we needed was uh, a community art center that was open to all comers and all genres of music and art. And so I came up with my own proposal for what ultimately became the Rotunda, which was a community gathering place for the promotion of arts and culture. Um, and to my great surprise, the administration of the university gave me a budget to try this idea out in one of their vacant buildings an old Christian science church that had been sold to the university a few years prior. Uh, And so I started uh, programming the rotunda with community arts events in collaboration with community residents from West Philadelphia and beyond um, and found that I was involved in the work of building community and building uh, sort of a a cooperative mindset around um, arts and culture, but as a, as a tool of urban planning, you know, and so Um, Over the years that followed, I became more and more interested in the intersection between arts, culture, cooperation, and urban development, eventually earning a master's degree and a PhD in urban planning, Um, moving on at Penn to supervise a number of cultural interventions, as you mentioned in your introduction, Um, and just getting more and more fascinated by the idea that kind of cooperative social and economic projects could uh, power the transformation of community in a positive way. Uh, and that ultimately led me to the research that began the, the story of this book.
2: So you followed your passion, it sounds like. And I, I want to get into that a bit later. Um, but first, I in the book, you use four case studies to illustrate practicing cooperation. And I thought it might be a good idea to start talking about the book, if you would describe those four examples a bit and why you chose them.
1: Sure. Well, the one that occurred to me first was a set of two consumer food co-ops, two grocery stores, both of them in Philadelphia, both of them founded in the early 1970s during the kind of new left era of of countercultural politics. Um, One is called Mariposa Food Co-op, and it's in West Philadelphia, near to where I live. And the other is called Weaver's Way Co-op, and it's um, in the northwest section of the city and at the time that I started my research, both were undergoing a massive internal transformation. They were moving from being, having a membership requirement where you had to uh, pay an equity investment in order to shop in the store, and also a member labor requirement where you had to work in the store every month in order to be able to shop, have shopping privileges at the store, Uh, And they were moving from that model to an open model where you didn't have to be a member and you didn't have to work in the store and anybody could shop. Um, And they were both at the same time thinking about physical expansions. So the Mariposa Food Co-op was in a tiny storefront. It ultimately moved to a much larger former bank building. And Weaver's Way Co-op moved from having one branch to ultimately having three or four uh, over the course of the time that I was studying them. Um, and so I wanted to understand how this organizational transformation affected the values of um, these two food co-ops and, and kind of contrast their organizational approach. So that's the first sort of one or two case studies, depending on how you count it. Um, after completing that research and publishing that research as a dissertation for the uh, Blaustein School at Rutgers University... I found myself hungry to continue thinking about cooperation um, and I wasn't really interested in just writing a book about two food co-ops. As interesting as their story was, it felt like it didn't tell the complete sto- story of cooperation. So I started looking around my environment and thinking about other cooperative social and economic experiments that were that were available to me and one of the first ones that I kind of encountered was this community acupuncture movement. Uh, which I can talk more about what that means in a few minutes. But basically I learned that my local community acupuncture clinic was participating in a network of 200 clinics around the United States that were all giving uh low cost acupuncture uh, and they were federated as a co-op. And so they were working together to mutually support the growth of this movement. And so ultimately I visited a number of these community acupuncture co-ops in different cities Spoke to many of them over the phone, got treatments, and I can talk more about my participatory methodology in a moment. But basically, became enmeshed in this community acupuncture movement. So that was the second set of cases there, um, and then the final one was a dance company called Headlong Dance Theater that I had been working with as a volunteer already for several years. And I realized that what attracted me to Headlong was their focus on being. Um, a kind of not a co op in the formal sense, in a legal incorporation sense, but a kind of collective where they were founded by three co directors who did all of the administrative heavy lifting as well as the choreography, um, and they shared the work equally. And um, so I became interested in the organizational dynamics um, and the values of this experimental dance company. And so it's an odd hodgepodge, Rachel, of different cooperative practices. You have on the one hand, you know, consumer food co-ops, which are very traditionally seen as central to the co-op movement. You have acupuncture as a kind of multi-stakeholder co-op with clinics all over the country, uh, which is a non-traditional co-op. And then you have something that's more of a collective structure that's not even necessarily a co-op, but a non-profit, but was acting cooperatively. And so with Armed with these sets of cases, I felt like I could sort of theorize about cooperation and make a more expansive statement about the practice of cooperation uh, as it values, uh, as it is valued in our society. So those are the cases.
2: Yeah, and that's really interesting because you ha- have described as as you say when when I think of a co op, I, I think oh my local food co op. I've never thought of my. Lo- I, I should say I am an acupuncturist. Um, and full disclosure for, you know this, but not everyone listening does, that I um, have also been involved with the People's Organization of Community Acupuncture that you speak about. But um, I I never knew before I started studying them that there was such a thing as an acupuncture cooperative, and and the dance is another one altogether. Uh, So I thought it might help to have a definition here, um, because you use the term practice in a specific way. Could you tell us what exactly is a practice?
1: So uh, there's a number of different definitions for what scholars mean when they talk about a practice. But one that I like uh, is connected to the, the Scottish-American philosopher Alistair McIntyre, And he calls a practice any sort of embodied form of socially cooperative activity that uh, embodies learning, And an end uh, can be done well or poorly sort of in the pursuit of excellence. And so I'll unpack that a bit. Um, The fundamental quality of a practice is that it's done socially, that you don't have a practice that is kind of um, there's no such thing as a practice that's done individually, because by its nature, in order to be to reach the level of complexity, it has to be embedded in the social context And that's true of something like, he uses the architecture as one of his examples. Even though there is an architect, maybe the solitary creator that signs the architectural drawings and seals them, there's a whole network of people that are involved. There's the client, there's the site, there's the assistants, there's the people who do the CAD drawings that sort of support the architect. Um, And every practice sort of happens in community. The second part I think that's important is that it involves learning. Um, he talks about practices as having internal and external rewards, so to speak. Um, the internal benefits of a practice are the things that you get just from doing the practice itself. So if you're learning chess, you learn chess to become good at chess, not to become a grandmaster and win prizes and travel all over the world. That would be one of those external benefits. And so a practice does a good job of balancing internal and external benefits Um, so that you're primarily involved in trying to learn and master the practice. And that gets to that third component, that it can be done well or poorly sort of in the pursuit of excellence, that practices are things that we perfect over time. Um, And how does this apply to cooperation? Well, to me, um, cooperation is a fundamentally social activity, of course. It's definitionally social, but also that um, it can be done well or poorly, and we see that when... Um, Co-ops can be exclusive and push people out, or they don't succeed financially, or any number of other failures in the system. Um, And they're always in the pursuit of excellence and virtue in the sense of kind of an ethical praxis to try to um, enhance social and economic life. And that's what attracted me to my cases. I, I saw that in each of them, that they were embodying a practice that was trying to kind of bring light. And life to what can be a very um, unpleasant capitalist, neoliberal kind of system.
2: So just to be clear, can I throw a, a few examples at you and ask you, is this a practice? We can
1: try. Let's do it.
2: So would medicine be a
1: practice? I think so, and there's a, a really good book that I, I have on my shelf that I'm forgetting the name of at the moment, but it talks about the kind of... Um, the ongoing perfection of medicine as an art, and certainly in the in the example of community acupuncture, it's an it's a model that's ever revising and ever looking for the most effective way to um, to embody the values of health and justice and equity in in the pursuit of um, of health. So yes, I think medicine is a practice. What about baseball? So it's that's an interesting one. I, I mean, you know, he talks about McIntyre talks about um, the difference between sort of like bricklaying and architecture. As bricklaying is sort of too simplistic to be a practice, mm-hmm. but architecture as a sort of like cooperative, complex, sustained activity is probably a practice. And so maybe you might say that an individual baseball game is not a practice, but that the kind of like evolution of baseball as a field. Um, and my son who's 11 years old tells me lots about the evolution of baseball as a field um, <laughs> might be considered sort of a practice at a, at a meta level.
2: Okay. And one more, what about Buddhist meditation? Because, you know, people who are practicing Zen Buddhist will talk about their practice all the time. Mm-hmm. And in Buddhism, you have Sangha, which is the community. So would, would, uh, let's say, would, would Zen Buddhism be a practice?
1: Yeah, I think, again, um, it Maybe it might I should be, say zazen, the, the meditative part. Right, right, exactly. Yeah, yeah. no, I would say that it, it makes sense to consider it a practice, certainly, and when you consider the communities of interest and the communities of um, participation that inhere in any different school of thought, and maybe it's not like the actual meditation itself that's the practice, but it's the sort of like the large-scale meta-praxis of... Um, the communities that form and the practices that they undertake um, individually and collectively in the pursuit of enlightenment or in the pursuit of quieting the mind. So, yeah, that's an interesting example. I think you've come up with a few that, that are uh, in different ways practices.
2: Okay, good. So, we're getting, I'm getting anyway a better handle on what a practice is. Um, I want to continue with the theme of definitions, uh, bodies, because you talk about bodies. In fact, you have a chapter, chapter three, Practices of the Body. Uh, and in this chapter, literally, you have pictures of a body that the dancers used to describe headlong at the dance troupe. So that's one example of a body. But what do you mean when you speak about the importance of the body uh, as a, I, I don't know, as a, an entity or a, um, anyway, as the body to cooperative
1: practice? Yeah, I would call the body a kind of site of cooperative practice. And I know mm-hmm. it kind of sounds... Um, counterintuitive because bodies are the things that delimit us and individuate us from others. Um, But what we learn, and Alistair McIntyre has a book called Dependent Rational Animals, where he talks a lot about this idea of our, and and many, obviously, the care scholars like Joan Tronto and other um, uh, feminist scholars have certainly done a lot of thinking about um, the importance of the body to moving society and social reproduction forward. But even though the body is an individual entity, we're constantly sort of being porous with our bodies in the sense that we care for one another's body, we restore one another's body, we support one another's body, and we engage in reciprocal relationships of care that kind of um, undergird the way society functions. Like right now, um, my in-laws have a home health care aide who's taking care of my elderly father-in-law. Several hours a day, and she's engaging very intimately with his body in a kind of cooperative gesture to help sustain his health and well-being. Um, and so, it was an insight that that came to me when I was studying cooperation that if you're not oriented towards how to cooperate from within your own body, um, you're not ready to prepare to be in relation to other bodies and to other cooperators. Um, and so, that ended up invoking ideas of emotion, ideas of vulnerability, ideas of mutual independence or interdependence, um, and ideas of what uh, George Herbert Mead calls a social self, a self that is not individual and rationalistic, Um, and kind of atomized and separated from everybody else, but instead collective and formed in its own identity by its relation to other people. And so I really wanted to strongly start my analysis of cooperation by locating it in individual bodies working in collective projects.
2: So it sounds to me like there's an emphasis on the actual physical labor, if I can say that, that takes place. And Certainly the examples you've given in a grocery store, there's a lot of physical labor. You have to be present. You have to carry things around. In acupuncture, of course, uh, you're working on someone's body. And the dance troupe, certainly, we can see how they are are physical. But but you also mentioned emotions. So is it entirely about the body? Is it also about the body-mind-spirit?
1: Yeah, no, I think you've hit it correctly there. I think the body is not um, just a physical entity, but the body is in a nexus of the seat of emotion, the seat of imagination, the seat of um, deep concern for well-being. And in all of those cases that you just mentioned, bodies, I say in the book, bodies are always on the line when it comes to cooperation. Um, I think that there's a, a, a real care that needs to be taken with the physical health and well-being of each body in cooperation. Because if you overstep the sort of boundary of, um, of health or of um, uh, embodied emotion, then there can be a real harm done. And I talk about this in the chapter on Headlong, where I talk about how they were asked to do repetitive uh, dance moves and uh, techniques and also emotional labor that was harmful to them in some of the headlong dance pieces that were a reflection of the angst that was going on amidst the creators and choreographers. And they were sort of putting the, the harm, if you will, onto the physical bodies of the dancers. Um, And in order to effectively cooperate and create the dances that they were hoping to see, they needed to attend more carefully to both the physical and sort of spiritual needs Um, of the dancers, but I very much see those physical and spiritual needs as a process that happens in tandem and not in isolation from one another.
2: Yeah. Oh, that makes more sense to me because I kept thinking there's, you know, when you have a body, there's a, there's a mind that goes along with it. Uh, So um, maybe this would be a good time to sort of talk about something else you raised, which is the uh, the, the danger of exclusion or exclusivity that can take place, even within a very progressive, liberal kind of cooperative practice, and how um, what the relationship of the body is to that.
1: Great. That's a great question, Rachel. And you know, that was a major concern for me, and I think I spend a fair amount of time in the book talking about something that I call the paradox of exclusivity. And what I mean by that is that in order for a co-op to succeed, It needs to draw a boundary around itself. There needs to be a sense of membership and fellow feeling that allows you to feel like, yes, this is my co-op. I'm part of this cooperative practice, and I um, am loyal to it. But if that boundary is drawn in such a way that it's exclusive in a negative sense, whether it's through excluding people on the basis of race, class, age, ability, gender, uh, etc., then that's obviously a pernicious boundary and that creates a kind of exclusivity that's really dangerous. Um, And especially, I would say, in progressive and left-leaning cooperatives, there's a real risk that um, we establish a sense of norms or a sense of practices that are um, well-meaning but exclusive. So the way I could point to this most directly is in the food co-ops I studied, um, high-priced organic and local and artisanal food um, is something that is, is assumed by a lot of liberals to be a good in and of itself, regardless of either the price that it costs or the um, cultural norms that it invokes around whether or not people are familiar with those kinds of foods, um, feel comfortable eating them, prioritize whether something is organic or local, um, and ends up basically through the through the mechanism of price and also through the mechanism of culture leading to a signal to the customer that this store is not for you. And so um, on the one hand, you want to draw a boundary around a co-op saying come be a member, participate in this co-op, uh, shop at this store, and don't shop at Trader Joe's or Whole Foods because we need to recycle these these dollars within our community and within our co-op. But on the other hand, you have, um, you know, food that's prohibitively expensive. And if somebody comes in the door asking for Cheerios or soda pop, they might get the side eye and are told, you know, we don't have that kind of junk food here. And there's nothing in the cooperative model in its original sense that says that the food has to be organic or that the food has to be artisanal and expensive. Um, And unfortunately, I think we do a poor job of, um, meeting the needs of a, multicultural society, when we limit the availability of our food on our shelves to things that are only of uh, interest and availability to people who are upper middle class and have like a heightened sensibility around um, organic and local and artisanal food.
2: Hmm. So what does a food co-op do to combat that tendency?
1: Well, there's a number of things that co-ops do, and, and we're lucky because the cooperative movement is undergirded by a set of seven principles that go back to the founding of the, the movement in the, in, the, uh, in the Eurocentric contests. The, um, the 1895 kind of cooperative principles that have been revised again and again give a lot of guidance, um, and one of the cooperative principles is education. So first of all, letting people know why things are the way they are, the second is democratic member, well, they're not in this order, but the second I want to mention is democratic member control, which means that you really want to encourage members and and shoppers to, to determine what's on the shelves um, and have a robustly participatory culture where it's not a few people making decisions in a hierarchical sense about what the co-op wants to be, um, but, but a, a, a broadly and robustly... Um, Participatory culture that kind of thinks through together what kind of products we want to have on the shelves or what kind of practices we want to embody uh, in our co-op. And then third, the, the, the principle I want to highlight is called concern for the community, that the people beyond just the immediate membership, especially in these open co-ops that don't require you to be a member to shop, um, should really be thinking about what are the people we need to ask the people in our community, what they want to eat, what they want to participate in and what they want to embody. Um, and so in my co-op, which, uh, is Mariposa food co-op where I still shop, I noticed yesterday when I was shopping there that they had, um, Smucker's peanut butter on the shelf. And I had never seen that before. And I was so excited. You may not be familiar with the brand depending on where you live, but, um, it's just a conventional peanut butter brand. It was the like low sugar variety that they sell the natural variety. But I thought, you know, having a brand name that people recognize, for this multicultural community where the co-op sits can be a real beacon to people who are shopping there that yes, like you can get name brand conventional um, hopefully ethically produced, but at least things that people are comfortable with in their food ways. Um, And maybe that was there because of a, of a customer or a member request. And so the co-op should remain open and participatory in that manner to, um, to not draw a boundary that is exclusive and pernicious
0: slash NBN fifty to get fifty percent off.
2: it sounds like it would be important, especially given the democratically controlled process, that that they would have a um a diverse membership because otherwise you may have a democratically decided um you know stocking the shelves but if everybody is is sort of homogeneous within that membership. Then yeah you might and all not those things a lot of
1: diversity. That's exactly right. And a lot of the co-ops that struggle with that Um, really don't understand why they don't attract a more diverse membership. There's a a classic article by the food geographer um, uh, uh, Alison Guthman who basically, it's called If Only They Knew and it's like, if only people knew how good organic food was for them. If only they were sort of more aware of the benefits of uh, eating local then they would just do it. And she pushes back on that logic and says, you know, it's, it's not for you to tell other people how to eat and how to live. It's for you to meet them in a democratic community and kind of co-deliberate on what the good life looks like. And this goes back to McIntyre and the notion of practices that in order to sustain a robust cooperative practice, you need to have a kind of participatory culture that's diverse and, and interactive. And in a lot of these co-ops that requires outreach um, and um, communication that is, is bigger than just kind of reaching out to the people who look like you or the people who you are friends. And Rachel, in the context of acupuncture, I think you'll appreciate that um, in the book, I was told by acupuncturists that they were trained to treat people that looked like them, that the patients mm. they would attract would be the people who were fit, healthy, often white, maybe female, um, upper middle class, and that they should seek out those patients in their network, so they could have a robust pool of patients. And the People's Organization of Community Acupuncture, which is one of my cases, turns that on its head and is looking for anybody and everybody to come through the doors of these acupuncture clinics. Um, And they do that through advertising a sliding scale. They do that through treating people in groups so that it feels less isolated. They do that in terms of like not criticizing people's health choices when people come in who may be obese or who may be smokers. Um, But really limiting the conversation to what can I help you with with acupuncture and how can I make you your life and your health a little better? Um, And so I think in the case of POCA, they're working really hard to kind of diversify the membership, not just uh, patients as members of the co-op, but patients as, um, as represented in the clinics. And I see a tremendous diversity in my local POCA clinics that I don't see when I go to a private acupuncture clinic.
2: Hmm. I'm, I'm glad you brought up polka because my mind was going there when you were talking about uh, the kinds of foods that people might, um, you know, this sort of liberal idea that, yes, organic food is um, is the best, organic vegetables, et cetera. And I, I know that polka uh, makes it a very strong point to not give lifestyle advice to their patients, which is in contrast to what uh, mainstream acupuncture Does And that raises for me another uh, point I want to raise with you about POCA, which is that, and this is um, unlike the food co-ops and headlong, POCA's practice, I might even say POCA's existence, is very much defined in opposition to what we call call mainstream North American acupuncture. Uh, Would you agree with that?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think they've defined themselves in contrast to mainstream American acupuncture. And that's actually been both a kind of like a feature of the model that they've established and also a point of pride, um, that they feel like there's something very wrong and very rotten. uh, And that's their take on it, not necessarily mine, in mainstream North American acupuncture. And that POCA is there to be a corrective to the failings of this system that privileges wealth and whiteness and a fit kind of body while also kind of employing Orientalist tropes like, you know, Chinese characters and, and uh, Chinese culture um, and a variety of other signifiers that sort of are borrowed um, from those cultures and and do, in fact, um, engage in dispensing lifestyle advice and kind of um, asking people potentially to take on expensive treatments that may be beyond their budgets. Um, and polka very much sees itself as a no nonsense, cut to the chase, make it affordable, and make it a movement kind of ethos that's very different from conventional acupuncture in the U.S. and beyond.
2: Yeah, and I know you also spoke to conventional acupuncturists in their um, one-on-one sort of clinics. So my next question on Poca is, what, what effect do you think that Poca, defining itself so oppositionally, uh, to conventional acupuncture, what do you fe- what effect do you think that has on their potential to um, successfully continue as a cooperative organization?
1: Well, I think it goes back to this idea of exclusivity and drawing a boundary. I think by saying we're not just um, we're not just acupuncturists who offer low cost acupuncture in a group setting, but we're a movement and we believe in values of anti-racism, anti-capitalism, um, social justice, and more, helps them at least, you know, I know they've struggled during the pandemic as 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 many small businesses have, but at least in the notion of pres- preserving the sense of movement or the sense of activism, it gives people a reason to stay polka clinics as opposed to joining up with a kind of private acupuncture model where they might still give, you know, POCA doesn't have a monopoly on low cost group treatment, especially now when other uh, private acupuncture uh, actors are sort of like borrowing or stealing the POCA model of community acupuncture. So what makes POCA successful as a movement, I think is in defining itself, not necessarily oppositionally, but in favor of these values that appeal to a more democratic, uh, ethos for acupuncture and it's all bodies are welcome and it's black lives matter. And it's, um, you know, we are there to serve a community that is underserved by not just the private acupuncture movement, but by conventional healthcare itself. And so I don't think it's necessarily about for their, for their sense of self-definition only being, um, anti something, but being very much pro, the values that they embody and sticking with that. And I think that to the extent that the organization can continue to promote those values and promote membership and promote patronizing the clinics as much as possible, um, I think they'll continue to be successful.
2: Um, Yes, thanks for that answer. And so this makes me think again, because you say you've had acupuncture treatments, You've worked, I think you worked as a member uh, worker at uh, your food co-op and you served on the board of of Headlong. So it seems very clear to me reading your book that this work is dear to your heart. You were very invested in all of your case studies in one way or another. Um, And in chapter three, back to practices of the body, you say, we are witnessing a moment of radical critique that opens toward future possibility. This critique itself constitutes utopian work! Exclamation point. Um, do you feel strong emotions about your work and what it reveals about the potential for, say, social transformation? Um, and and follow up question, just quickly: Is are you is are you engaging in what you call scholar activism?
1: Yeah, I think yes to both of them, and and I hope so. In the case of the second, the idea of being an activist scholar, but in terms of the passion that animates my inquiry, you know, I didn't choose to be a distanced observer towards any of these cases. I chose to be a kind of um, loving critic of each of the cases. I spent enough time working in the two food co-ops and serving on committees. I spent years on the board of uh, Headlong Dance Theater and I and I went to, I think it was 14, uh, 14 clinics, whether they were private acupuncture clinics or co- poka clinics, to get treatments and to talk in depth. You know, These interviews would last sometimes a couple of hours um, with each of these people. And so there were over 100 interviews that I undertook for the project overall, that's in the practice of co- or practicing cooperation, um, and I think that kind of commitment um, really was about helping me figure out my own values and figuring out my own political commitments. Um, and I think research at its best, you know, this is a kind of cliche, but it's always me search too. You know, you're always kind of finding yourself and locating yourself in uh, the problematic that you're studying. And I think it's it's disingenuous at best, when researchers sort of try to have a distanced objectivity towards the phenomena that they're studying. You know, uh, why would they choose these phenomena to study? Why would they choose these research questions? Why would they choose these methods if they weren't personally, at least to some extent, invoked and invested in these questions? And rather than hiding that under a cloak of supposed objectivity, I believe in sort of fully embracing not um, – A lack of objectivity, but a kind of subjectivity, where I am a a political subject, I am a moral subject, I am an embodied person in this work. And I hope that when people read it, they see that I was able to be critical, and able to find the shortcomings or the challenges and opportunities that these cases face, and that cooperation faces as a practice. But at the same time, put a stake in the ground for my political commitments that were you know, valuable and valuable to my own self-development. I just think that's a a really crucial function of research. And hopefully what jumps off the page to you as a reader, Rachel, is the passion that I feel for cooperation um, and for the potential that it holds to transform society.
2: Uh, It does jump off the page. And I I really like the phrase you use there, a loving critique. Um, I think that's, that's really evocative. So obviously you were, you used participant observation um, as a methodology. And could you just say something about the, the challenges of doing that as well? I mean, I think you've sort of spoken to it a bit, but.
1: Well, I mean, the first thing I would mention is that it's incredibly time consuming. So it took me 10 years to put this book together um, and I was doing a lot of other things at the time I was putting the book together. I had two children with my partner. Um, you know, I published another dozen academic papers. I got tenure and got a job at my institution and graduated with a PhD. So I was very busy uh, in the 10 years that it took to write the book. But this kind of research is really painstaking and requires a full-throated commitment to the project. Um, and there are easier ways of going about doing research and publishing um, and, and being a scholar, you could certainly download a data set of census data or other forms of, you know, kind of other quantitative data and perform um, mathematical and econometric equations on that data and have a number of papers that are ready to go in six months um, instead of 10 years. And so the first thing that is really challenging about participant observation is that it just takes a tremendous amount of time um, and effort of, of putting my body on the line. You know, I was the one lifting heavy boxes at the co-op or getting needles stuck into me at a variety of clinics, even though that was actually quite enjoyable for me um, and, and participating in headlongs, sometimes arduous strategic planning processes and other, Um, organizational gyrations. So it's a very uh, effortful practice to do this kind of research. The second thing is that things really change. Um, And I'm discovering that now as I'm circling back to the people who I interviewed several years ago um, to tell them about the book and to get them excited about rereading their own um, words that are in the book, that life doesn't stop moving just because you stop participating in the experiment of the cooperation and doing research on it, that um, the pandemic has had major effects on each of the cases and has been transformative for them. And that just because my book ends on page, you know, 250, it doesn't mean that the story of these cooperative projects ends. um, And sort of, there's always that yearning or frustration on the part of the researcher that I didn't get to capture the full evolution you know, until the end of time of these cases, that they're moving targets. Um, and uh, And the last thing that's really difficult about doing this kind of qualitative participatory activist scholar research is that you very much are on the line, and you're very vulnerable, I think, to critique by people who see this kind of research as illegitimate or politically compromised because they're thinking that you shouldn't get involved – in the life of your research and you should just sort of take a distanced objective uh, viewpoint. I'm less worried about that one. I feel like I have a strong defense of my methodology, but um, those are definitely three considerations that make this project particularly challenging over time.
2: Yes. Well, I have to say it certainly makes for reading a more interesting book when you have someone who was uh, involved because the, uh, the the tales you, you tell really stories. Uh, people's words and emotions and, um, and also, uh, you know, there's a narrative arc as it were through, for instance, headlong dance theater they had or headlong dance troupe. They had some really, um, it's a wrenching times emotionally, particularly for the principals, but also for the dancers who were involved And as a reader, you, you get drawn into that. So I think it's a really much more compelling way of, of conveying your research to people. At least for me, it certainly was.
1: Well, thank you for that. I mean, I found that to be the goal of the book was to embody the words and the stories and the emotions and the vulnerabilities of the people with whom I spent time. Um, and to the extent that the book honors that and honors them, I think it's hopefully that makes it a success.
2: Yeah. So um, now I want to get actually to the title of your book. Uh, and the subtitle is Mutual Aid Beyond Capitalism. And I have a question by what you mean by beyond capitalism, because uh, you say in the book that some co-ops are avowedly anti-capitalist, others are liberal, but comfortable with an expression of compassionate capitalism. So you also discussed the concept of capitalocentrism.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Could you just explain to us what capitalocentrism is? Um, and it's important to your thesis and how that differs from Capitalism.
1: Yeah. So a lot of the thinking in that comes from feminist geographer uh, J.K. Gibson-Graham, which is the pen name of Julie Graham and Catherine Gibson, writing together as a collective entity that calls itself J.K. Gibson-Graham. Um, and their hypothesis is that we are sort of overinvesting in the notion or this sort of imaginary of capitalism that we're thinking that the world is hopelessly, for some of us, hopelessly capitalist, and there's nothing we can do about it, short of waiting for a communist or socialist revolution. And they think that that kind of thinking is over-determined, and what they call capitalocentric, that it ignores the diversity of economic activity that takes place even within and beyond capitalism. And so when you look at the phenomena, say, of cooperatives, and many other things like foraging or um, CSAs or babysitting collectives or any number of um, activities that take place within a nominally capitalist framework like we have in North America, um, there's this incredible richness that we can uncover, a kind of community economy that they call it. And rather than waiting for that proverbial revolution They think that we need to go beyond capitalism and embrace and support these non-capitalist or post-capitalist projects like the cooperatives that I studied in this book um, and imagine that our economic system could be more full of those kinds of projects rather than the kind of extractive, climate-harming, exploitative, and racist practices that make up so much of our political economy. And so the goal of, of, of talking about mutual aid beyond capitalism is not to say capitalism doesn't exist and not to say that we're going beyond capitalism in the sense of a kind of communist revolution or some other revolution that overthrows capitalism, but that we look for the spaces of possibility and hope within a capitalist framework to start pushing the boundaries beyond our notion of what capitalism is, so that we can transform our economy into a more community-centered solidarity praxis.
2: And how do we get, as a society, how do we get away from the idea outside of the idea of capitalocentrism? Is it by just increasing these um, practices that are working within the margins or on the margins?
1: Well, I think we do it step-by-step and we start in the margins and we move from the margins to the center. And we may even begin by redefining what marginality is. I mean, there are so many people on, and I try to talk about this in the book. Um, I'm not sure how successful it is, but I talk about the ideological flexibility of the cooperative model, that there's nothing inherently right-wing or left-wing about people banding together and doing sort of pro-social collaborative practices um, you know, many community development credit unions were started in churches. Um, you know, many of the whole West was electrified and brought broadband to by rural electrification co-ops. And so there's nothing that means that we have to say that, like, if you vote Democratic or if you vote liberal or progressive, that you're in favor of a co-op. And then if you vote for a Republican or vote for a candidate on the right, that you're Against cooperation. I think that cooperation is a value that a lot of people hold, even in their different ideological guises. And so, my hope for the practice of cooperation is that we can sort of do a better job, as I said, with those cooperative principles of engaging in more education, more popularization, more promulgation, and ultimately more democracy. And that's why the book ends on a chapter called The Practices of Democracy. To make sure that our democracy is more robust and more um, thoroughgoing, we have to embrace the cooperative values that are at the the heart of a lot of our practices and sort of move beyond the margin and move more centrally.
2: Mm -hmm. I wonder, as you mentioned, the the pandemic and uh, mutual aid is is part of that, of your title, your subtitle. Uh, Do you think that there's been more of it? Because... The whole idea of cooperation is sort of up against the rugged individualism of the American frontier ethos that you mention in the book. Um, but during the pandemic, there was a lot of mutual aid that came about. The New Yorker had an article about it, but um, you know because it was out there, and people were putting together these community ways of helping others in the community. So do you see that there's been uh, maybe some um, advance in the Just the prevalence of the practice of cooperation since the pandemic or during the
1: pandemic, because we're never going to get out of it at this point. Right, right. Yeah, no, I agree that there has been an uptick or an influx of participatory democratic experimentation around mutual aid. And I think it's extremely exciting, whether that's the concept in Philadelphia and in other places, we have these people's fridges where people... Um, come and donate produce and, and uh, other goods to these community fridges that are not locked. They're just open all the time to anyone who needs to take sort of what they need. And um, there have been giving circles and there have been food distribution drives and there have been people doing childcare for essential workers. Um, and there's just been a tremendous sense of co- responding to the call. And I think, if anything, it's been under-publicized um, because it has been underpublicized publicized because its a revolutionary, evolutionary act of mutual aid and solidarity, and I think that the people who are kind of calling for this to become a sustained and regularized feature of our political economy, you know, again deserve our support um, and our financial contributions and our contributions of time um, to really move to a space of caring um, and a space of uh, a space of building capacity for mutual aid, because I think that's what's going to get us through the challenges of things like the pandemic or things like climate change um, and the, the big kind of um, frightening things that loom on our horizon. We will only be able to meet them together. There's a a, a, a slogan, all we have is each other. I have it on a t-shirt mm-hmm. um, and, at home. And so I think we take that seriously when we think about mutual aid and we think about cooperation as a practice. Yeah.
2: And as a scholar activist, Andrew, What do you hope that readers will take away from your book?
1: Well, more than anything, I hope they will look at their own work and their own world and see cooperation as a viable possibility in their lives. And so when I chose these very eclectic cases, food co-ops, an acupuncture co-op, and a collectively run dance company, I wasn't saying these constitute the entirety of what cooperation can be. I was saying here are three exciting but somewhat random examples of cooperation. And if you, the reader, look within your own life, you, you should be able to find examples of cooperation that are that are going on in your community and get involved with them and help to bolster them. Um, that, to me, would be the most successful outcome of the book is if people see their own practices in the stories that I tell and say, well, if Headlong could do it, then I could do it. Or if Weaver's Way could do it, then I could do it. Um, and if everybody who reads the book, even though you know that might be a, a small subset of the general population, it would be powerful if they all felt more emboldened and more empowered to build cooperation in their own lives.
2: Mm-hmm. Well, it certainly made me go back to my local cooperative grocery store where I'd only ever bought groceries and start talking to the people who work there about uh, it being a cooperative, and they actually sell a book uh, about it. So I've read the whole history of it, and I'm now much more feel much more connected to that store. And I'm doing a lot more shopping there too. So that's well. A, the proof is in the pudding, thing.
1: literally. So there you go. <laughs> Pardon me.
2: Yeah. Um, Andrew, we've taken up a lot of your time today, but I do want to ask you um, one final question, which is what are you working on now that you've gone through your very, very busy 10 years? What's next?
1: Sure. Um, You know, there's two sides to my scholarship. One is the work on cooperatives, and the other is the work on arts and humanities as a tool for civic revitalization. And um, now that I've finished with the book on cooperatives, I'm turning my attention more to the work on arts and culture as a tool, or as a framework for increasing community and increasing the same kinds of values that I hope the book embodies. Um, And so I'm engaged in a number of projects right now that look like um, I have a survey that's out right now for cities in the Northeast and Mid-Atlantic United States looking at how artists are responding um, to the pandemic and finding their livelihoods um, in this time of tremendous stress and strain. Um, And I've got a project with the Pennsylvania Humanities Council where we'll be in 2022 mapping the arts and humanities in the state of Pennsylvania and looking for spaces of resilience and spaces of possibility to help recover from the pandemic using things like um, libraries, public museums, art art entities, um, community art spaces, and other forms of um, cultural expression. So um, I'm really excited to delve into that other part of my brain that values arts and culture just as it values cooperation um, as a tool for bringing about some of these community economies that, that I talked about in the book.
2: Yeah, that's great. That's really interesting because that's certainly something that not only artists – have suffered during the pandemic but uh, people who who feed on that um, what nurtures their soul as well um, and have found it harder to come by i think
1: mm-hmm.
2: so um andrew i really really enjoyed reading your book i strongly recommend it because uh he tells a good tale along with um giving a very good theoretical foundation and what the practice of cooperation is um, and how it can be used to create, uh, let's say, a better and more just society. So thank you so much
1: uh, for speaking with us today, Andrew.
2: It's been a real pleasure.
1: Thank you so much, Rachel. It's been a pleasure.